Transit Voices with Ben Whitaker. Welcome to Transit Voices. And this month we're meeting with Richard Rosen, an old friend of mine who's spends over 20 years in transit, much of that time leading the product team at trainline.com, which we'll find out more about. And then since 2015, working as a freelance consultant for carriers, vendors, retailers, and government bodies covering projects as diverse as contactless pay-as-you-go, fares policy, compensation, revenue management, really, really in the detail of running rail and bus and upgrades and fares in the new world. We cover topics today by getting into the first ever SaaS ticketing service for rail anywhere in the world, which he and his colleagues developed, and the struggle of dragging an industry from the technology of fax and printed information into something that could possibly be sold more like a, an airline ticket on the internet. Join us as well to find out more about where things fall down and where huge gaps still appear in the most advanced journey planners in the world. Really a fantastic and interesting exploration. Let's find out more. Now, let's get talking. Richard Rosen, thank you so much for coming on Transit Voices this month. And, you know, it's great to catch up with you after having worked with you for so many years. For those who didn't know, me and Richard started working on, well, mobile ticketing for United Kingdom Rail maybe what, 15 years ago? Something like that, wasn't it? It's was about 2008, 2009, trying to remember when we did it. It began back in sort of 07 when we were kicking around things at RSP, which is the United Kingdom train operating group that kind of tries to bundle everything together so that all of our disparate train franchises can have ticketing that they understand from each other. Do you want to give us just a quick potted history of, of what got you into transit in the first place and as well as the activity in Trainline, which has transformed the United Kingdom train ticketing experience forever in multiple waves? What else you've been getting involved in? I'm probably one of these sort of accidental transit people. So I don't think I ever sort of left school with the, you know, my aim for the next 25 years is to sell train tickets. I thought I was going off into a nice world of being an avionic engineer in the airline industry and playing around with planes on a windy evening on a Heathrow airport. What changed for me, I think, was it was it was the tail end of the dot-com boom in the sort of 99-2000. I was in the airline industry, that wasn't going great. Low-cost air was starting to come in and, like I said, everything we were used to in air looked fragile. And yeah, there was this dot-com boom thing going on that looked like it could be worth playing with and uh, went went off to do some consulting around the, the sort of technology online retail space. And that led me into a startup business called QJump that was setting itself up to sell UK rail tickets as a competitor to the better known train line. QJump ended up being a, a sort of three-year story for us. We had a, a year of building it, getting it live, a uh, uh, a year of running it and learn how to how to do a, a good job of that. But then ultimately a year of selling the business and ultimately Trainline acquired QJump in 2004 and led, led to my first stint in Trainline. It wasn't a long stint that first stint. I was gone within six months back to National Express playing with coaches and anything from trying to get Wi-Fi on board vehicles to actually kit on coaches so we could check in customers when they arrived. And then several years later, back in, I think, 2007, found myself back in Trainline. And at the time, they'd just been sold from Virgin Group, got private equity investors. 
this sort of usual story of a, a big three-year investment to transform the business. Just yeah. bit, so yeah. that we make sure everyone understands what Trainline is who are outside of the United Kingdom. Trainline.com was the, the first kind of aggregation website to sell long-distance and short-distance train journeys. And so it used APIs in and out of a, an industry-wide booking system to get the timetables and allow a complex journey lookup to go from city to city or village to city or all over the UK, look at all the different pricing options, show those to the customer, allow them to buy that ticket. And then initially, they would get a code that they were able to walk up to a ticket machine and then collect the printed cardboard tickets that would let them do their journey, including subway crossing across uh, London. And the experience of booking one of these long-distance, multi-point, multi-train operator, possibly including Subway, the experience of looking at all of the options from that was very, very complex. You would end up not only with this is a single fare each way and this is a return, but this is the one that lets you go at that time of day or another. This kind of ticket can only be used on a single service with a book seat, and this one can be used at any time flexibly. It's yeah. a very, very big, complicated thing, more akin to doing a an international air ticket. And of course, in the sort of first 10 years of, of that, so up until 2007, the industry in many ways wasn't ready for it. People would define their products and their retail rules and they'd describe them on a piece of paper and fax the instructions to a ticket office clerk and say, this is how we want you to sell the ticket. And and there wasn't all that structured data that you could feed into a sort of computing engine to say, for these scenarios, offer these products, but actually you can't offer this product unless they've got a child with them on a Sunday afternoon, because that was only written down in the faxed instructions. This is what, you know, mass and journey planners are really facing as a complexity as they start to pull disparate public transit operators together and find that some of those ticket types, some of those product offerings, as you say, only work with having a child or only work at these times of day or at those drop-offs, trying to get that to go into Google Maps or go into somebody else's simply journey plan is one thing, but then selling the thing and having the right refund or non-refund and the flexibility afforded by those tickets understood by the passenger before they journey is really, really quite complex. And in many ways, that was the first 10 years of that online retail journey with Trailline is it was there was a bit of customer experience there and obviously front end but actually a lot of that first decade was the heavy engineering you know how can you build a journey planner that takes all these feeds and within a few seconds can give you some journey results and of course back in the early days we still had that please wait screen you put in what you wanted and up came the ticking clock and five or ten seconds later you were presented with some options not the sort of instant results everyone's used to today but i think 2007 was an interesting turning point because it was when it started to move from being an engineering problem and data aggregation and and just making the thing functional to actually how can this thing now actually transform people's access to rail and real focus on usability so of course around that time we've got the whole web 2.0 so we could have revolutionary things like calendars that appeared when you clicked on a date field rather than having to guess how to type in the date format or the predictive text where you could type in a few letters and it would suggest where you're going which uh, you know if you, nowadays i think we'd all just pretty much take as a given but some of the bigger stuff of course was on the ticketing side so you know in my early years in QJump, one of our biggest 
business risks was postal delivery and postal strikes. Most of our tickets, we had a print room on the ground floor. People sat there taking tickets out of printers, putting them in envelopes, and then running down to the post office at the end of the day to get those posted out to people to travel in a week's time. Wow. Yeah, it blows my mind. You know, even even ticket on departure, which is the collecting your ticket printed out from a ticket vending machine, wasn't available everywhere. Before we got to that stage of um, collecting from from self-service machines, Machines and the PCI security people would have a, a nightmare at this. You know, we used to actually fax the orders over to stations. So the, or- the order would come in on a nice, clever, pretty website. And then actually in the call centre, people would then print those orders off, off from the website onto a piece of paper, drop them in the fax machine, fax the orders to the station. At the station, the ticket office clerk would receive the fax. They'd key the order into the, the machine at the at the ticket office window and then put it in a little box ready for you to come along. And you'd say, hello, I'm Ben. I've come to collect my tickets. And they'd have a quick ferret round in the box. And yep, Ben, we've got your tickets. At some point, we got to the point of saying, could we shorten that time down from a day down to how do we do that within an hour or how do we bring it down to instant trainline.com running a private brand direct to customers saying we're trainline.com we'll sell you tickets for anywhere some of the train companies had decided that they weren't going to build a bespoke ticket sales system for online ticket sales themselves they were going to get as a service online ticket sales from trainline.com who'd already built one and yeah. knew all about how to do it. And so if anything, trainline.com was one of the first SaaS offerings in the the train ticketing world. Is that fair? I think that's a fair way of looking at it. It was mutually beneficial in a way because it gave that wholesale relationship with the carriers in, in the train companies to sort of collaborate on both sides of the fence. So if you were just a retailer... You know, in many ways, you're given the standards book and said, this is how you can sell tickets. If you're also working with a number of those big carriers to provide their platform, of course, you can then get into those more strategic conversations of, I guess, where we started, of do customers really want to order online, wait two days, collect it from the station, et cetera? Or at the time, we thought they could be printing barcode tickets off on their printers at home. And it was that constant game of standardization versus agility that on one hand, we you know we didn't want to wait whilst 24 train companies agreed on the ideal QR code standard and interoperability. But equally, we didn't want to get to the point where we'd got 24 different solutions and everybody had gone off on their own. And I think it was we, we sort of had to tread this path of finding cohorts of collaborators that are going, here's three or four train companies that are keen to do something quickly once you've proven it with three or four you get five or six come along and then at which point you've actually accidentally defined the standard because you've got so much momentum that that there's no point going away and and designing something new and uh, the policy angle comes in similar ways that so local politicians will often look at their local transport networks and think very much about how do I deal with the 30 million journeys a year that go in and around my city and they gravitate towards solutions like we want smart card, we want day pass products, etc. And, and very much that their, their, their mind is often gloms to, I want a local smart card, yes. which is very much about my city of Manchester. And it must encapsulate all things that Mancunians are going to use in Manchester. And exactly as you said, some of these long distance trains are coming from Scotland through Manchester to London. They'll then say, 
but some of my Manchester residents are using that long distance train to commute in and out of the city from some of the outlying villages. I want them to be able to use their Manchester smart card to go in and out of this this long distance train, which is carrying airline style passengers somewhere else. It's an interesting uh, question because this this has come up in America where their railways are segregated quite a bit from the Amtraks that run city to city on booked airline style tickets. And the commuter trains like Boston Commuter Rail, which only runs at commuting times. And then we get other rail services that run leisure services more regularly during the weekend, during the day, and allow people to get in and out. And they're confused in their offering because, especially post-COVID, we're seeing that those services which are focused only on white-collar workers going at commuter clock they're not really getting the ridership, but they are seeing ridership return on the few leisure services they do. So they're going to have to change their mindset and change their timetables to something that's a a regular journey and looks more like, it's more like a a light rail or an express bus that doesn't do too many stops, but does run continuously through the day and give you frequency and isn't just a beginning of day, end of day kind of working day thing. It's, It's one of these things where public transport has built itself around a 1950s working fantasy, which no longer is real. You know, most public transit users actually do multi-point journeys and strange times of day these days. And of course, you, you bridge some of that into some of the risks we see with policy, that there's this danger of you see something that works very well in one context at one time for one group of people, and then everybody else says, well, I want that for my transit network as well. And I think in the UK, probably the obvious example is I want London-style ticketing. People have seen Oyster Card and then Contactless be hugely successful in the greater London area. And it's almost become part of the standard playbook of, you know, I'm a mayor of some city somewhere else. I will deliver you London-style ticketing. And I'm not going to do down London Star Ticket. It's been hugely successful. Lots of people like it. But I think we also need to be sort of mindful of there are different customer needs, there are different place needs. And and this is back to some of the stuff we were talking about on, you know, how we almost developed you know, the barcode standards in UK Rail by stealth and by get a few people using it, learn the problems quickly, fix the problems, get it better, get more people using it. And, but you know, before you know, it's become a standard. And I think it's very difficult to do that if your model is very centralized systems, big five, 10 year procurements to replace those systems, you know, there is something here about creating that ecosystem where we can be continuously evolving, you know, spotting the iPhone launch going, what could we do with that iPhone? You know, it was, we were doing a, whatever it was now, 15 years ago. I'm going to steal a phrase from Josh Robin, who was working at the Boston MBTA, then came to work for Masabi, And uh, I think he's now at Apple doing fun things with digital ID for government passes on the iPhone. And he said, in the time you could have designed, procured, built and floated the battleship, which then either succeeds or sinks, you could have launched 30 speedboats seen which ones worked and which ones didn't work, and then, you know, advance and, and double down your investments on the speedboats that worked. And the United Kingdom mobile barcode and, and printed barcode system was more like that. It, it made a decentralized system without a, a mega central procurement. It made something that wasn't going to require everybody to submit to a giant central system or a, a, a you know an imposed standard early on. It could, as you say, have a committee of the willing, see if it worked, and then grow from there and not require everyone to agree initially 
And I think to because there was this commercial tension and lack of trust, which we also see between regions sometimes, you know, they say what London wants to do might not match with what Manchester wants to do. By keeping it decentralized and avoiding that that kind of ogre with the big stick, I think it, it got to go a lot faster and a lot further. And I, th- I think that, that model has worked very well there because I think it was riding on top of people who'd seen how scary it gets when a really big IT system starts to get old and starts yeah. to get very expensive to upgrade or even just to keep in good state of, of repair and then becomes very expensive to replace and very scary because you, you've got a kind of two, three-year replacement time just to re-engineer all of the funny habits the old system had before you drop in a new one that has to play nice with everything else around it. And you saw some of the the ancient rail IT systems that you had to join up to Trainline and how difficult it was for the industry to build out of that. It's very difficult to ever retire a proposition. And it's one of the things I, I keep finding now in my career when I come back to, to do projects in areas where I've worked before is they'll have some shiny new proposition and some shiny new platform. And then once you prod a little bit, you, you find, oh, that, that um, 2005 thing, it's still running in the background because we still have this particular product that is too big to retire, but too niche to justify moving on to anything new. Yeah, yeah. It's one of those things that you very rarely really reduce cost unless when you add a new thing, you take something old away. I think sometimes fares reform can do that because I think with, with overall fares upgrade, we often find people do things the wrong order. A bit like when you move house, it's best to throw things away before you move house rather than just after. The same with fair collection, which is often uh, we see procurements where somebody says, I want my new fair collection to have these new features, but to lift and shift and do everything the old thing did. And you look at the old thing and you realize that some of those product offerings and the limitations on the product offerings were all designed around the limitations of the ticket formats and technologies ahead of the time. And of course, politically, I think is is probably the key word in that, that I've probably drifted into that camp, unfortunately, of the hurdle to climb politically to retire fares and products that may result in letters in the mailbag is probably a bigger hurdle to climb than the technology hurdle of we'll just support them in the new system. You touched on an interesting point in there, of course, as well, on fares and building the fares around the system constraints of old. And it often gets me wondering if we actually end up doing similar with the timetables and networks and this trade-off between we have clock-faced timetables because they're things that people can easily commit to memory and you can easily print on a poster. You mean yeah, a it, clock-faced timetable is, you know, the bus will arrive at 10 past the hour, exactly. 20 past the hour, 30 past the hour, and that happens on every hour rather than what actually would be the way to get the most buses round would slightly vary because the route doesn't actually run in an even number of hours. Yeah, because yeah, you, you've got different traffic at different times of day, you've got different yeah, demand but and number I, of passengers. I think this, this and... comes down to whether or not you're doing those long-run services that are going from this village to this village and this village, and you only see a bus every half an hour. It has to be on a timetable, whereas when you're doing urban, what you want is frequency, and you don't want a timetable. You just want to know it's going to be five or six minutes between buses, yeah. and you don't need a super dense timetable that's showing you every five six minutes or even different routes at times of day with whether you go around the side streets to pick people up in the off peak but you stick to the main roads in the peak and all of that well personally i think most buses stop far too frequently they waste so much time by stopping so frequently on the theory that people will not walk quarter of a mile 
to get to a bus stop. That is one of my other bugbears of journey planners that don't give you that realistic option for you on how to get from A to B. So a lot of my time was spent with rail journey planners, which in a way are relatively easy because you've you've got a defined track network that you know, one particular mode sticks to. But after I get frustrated when I do multimodal journey plans and it'll tell me that it's going to take me four hours to get somewhere by walking getting a bus then another bus then another bus then a train then another bus when i go well really i would have just driven to the park and ride got one bus one train and walked at the other end and it was all going to take two and a half hours rather than this very clever journey plan you've done that's just actually put me off taking public transport for that journey oh i i so agree with you i mean i use google maps a lot i will admit and i just wish i could tell it at the very beginning i can take a folding bike or I will use a private taxi for journeys of this sort to do the join up rather than wait an hour for the single bus that takes me to the industrial estate at the other end of my journey. And if I could say, optimize me a public transit journey that will also make use of short taxi journeys or will also assume a folding bike, that would be great. And I don't have to do that manually every single time and go, that isn't a six hour journey. That's a two hour journey just with a cab at each end. It's an area that I'm surprised hasn't got better. So I forget exactly when it was, but I think it was around 2011, 2012. I was actually working, doing the work to force rail timetables into GTFS format so that trains would actually appear on Google Maps in the UK. And I guess, you, you know, you take that for granted now, but at the time, they, the transit planning capability was very limited and fragmented. It's just an area I feel... Given the pace this was all moving at and all the clever stuff that's gone into journey planning, it just, I'm slightly disappointed that we we don't seem to have dealt with some of the fundamentals very well in in, in the past decade. Is is, is this because of commercial model? Is the reason that we have such a focus on mass because the people building journey planners want more money and if they can do the transaction, they can actually get the revenue out to pay for all the goodies. Whereas what we as the traveling public want is a really good journey planner, but we've all sort of started to feel that journey planners are free and we're unwilling to pay for all of these goodies to be put in. And is is that where the, 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 the failed mass experiments of unify the payment has come to just try and make money out of journey planners, which is it, it's a necessary thing if we want the journey planners to keep getting invested in. Yeah, I, I keep spotting a pattern with these. If it's the, there's a difference between stuff that showcases well at a conference and stuff that works well in practice. And a, you know, a lot of these concepts I've seen, you see them demonstrated in conference, and you see the whole room going, "Wow, that's clever!" You know, you you've done this, you've done that, and uh, and then and then you actually go and try and use them out in the field, and you go, "Well." I, I wouldn't have done that journey because I'm I'm willing to walk a little bit longer. Or as you said, the examples you give of it's found a really clever connection that saved 10 minutes. But if I miss that connection, it's left me strand, stranded for an hour where I might have wanted a more resilient journey that took 10 minutes longer. But if any connection was missed, I was only waiting five minutes for the next one. And the lack of mixing modes, I think, is often a frustration in there. You only have to look at most railway stations and they'll have big car parks, or most cities will have park and rides. Very few journey planners do a good mix of, I'll take you to the park and ride and put you on the shuttle bus. They'll either try and get you on the bus all the way from door to door, which will probably look slow and uh, unappealing, 
or they'll give you a driving option where they assume that you'll be able to park on the pavement right outside the office that you're going to and completely ignore the the issue that you'll end up parked in a multi-story a mile away from where you're going and still have a miles walk at the end of your journey so pet hobby horse of journey planning could do better yeah i'd have to agree and uh, but i you know we can see a number of very good journey planner companies have have gone through commercial struggles they've been trying to find how you monetize all of those wonderful goodies you've invested in and built and maintained and just as as trainline had to do working really hard to get the good data in because some of the data feeds you're now consuming to find those buses and shuttles and everything else aren't fit for purpose yet because nobody's really used them and you find out that they're wrong or out of date. That's hard, hard, hard work. And someone somewhere has to pay for it. And how's that get paid for without them making a sale, without them selling a ticket that they can take a percentage of or a transaction they can bolt something else to? That's been the, yeah, this challenge of, yes, how do I make a business model out of this? It's very interesting academic project. We've touched on mass a few times in our conversation, and this brings us very nicely onto our, our your pick for boondoggle and underdog, your pick of the thing which is too hyped and doesn't actually do anything, and your your pick of the, the underdog we should all concentrate a bit more on. I think many times before we've we've had the boondoggles of Maz or Hyperloop. I, I was going to go a little bit more nuanced, and I think there's a bit of the Maz proposition that's the boondoggle to me, and it's where, where we were going in our earlier conversation. If it's this opaque pricing structure that, that there will be a bundled price for a bundle of services, and the idea that that is the anchor feature of the Maz proposition. I'm a skeptic. You know, I'm not sure customers trust that opacity. You know, they've seen it in other markets of, yeah, customers like to know what the individual components are costing. It creates yet another choice because you've got all, you know, you're then immediately into the, should I buy the bus ticket plus the train ticket or the Maz ticket? And one of them will be sold per journey and the other will be sold per week. So you're then trying to guess how many times am I going to the office this week? And It's, all, it's almost that the, 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 the Maz subscription and... is the opposite of capping. Account-based yeah. ticketing and capping, CMV capping, lets you travel around and then gives you capped at different periods over different zonal or modal ticket combinations and just says, that would have been the cheapest one for you, and I'm not going to ask you to to guess in advance. Whereas mass think- subscription says, I want you to guess in advance. And just like an underused gym membership, we're just going to eat all the money that you never, ever use. And, and that really sticks in people's craw. And, and of course, it's not just the end customers. I think you see some of this in the operators as well, of the sort of suspicion about NAS of, well, if you're going to be selling my journeys, are you going to expect a discount? Are you going to take a cut from that? And yeah, you, you get into this whole commercial concern of, well, I've lost control of pricing my trains or pricing my product. and. Or even I, guiding I people a... to which modal choices on a particular flow or route. You might find that the MAS operator might be favoring those routes that give a greater sales commission to the MAS operator rather than other things. Yeah, and, and of course, yeah, it also creates some sort of bizarre cross-subsidies in there that generally people are expecting a discount for bundling lots of things together. But then generally, when you look at the income profiles, the customers that just use bus tend to have lower incomes than those customers that come in on the train and then use the bus. But you're discounting the revenue you're taking from the customers that are using the greater bundle that generally got the higher incomes. And it feels it distracts the whole proposition. And we should just focus on making it simple for people to pay, having fair prices and good journey planning and not tie ourselves up in knots around 
big, complicated, all-you-can-eat multi-mode products. Yeah, I have to agree. So if bundled subscription mass is uh, your boondoggle, what's your what's your underdog? I think it's something around the world of data. And we've got a lot of data in transit. And if I look how that's changed just over the past decade, you know, we, we've gone from most people paying cash anonymously to buy their journeys. Vehicles might have rudimentary sort of manual passenger counting to actually now we've got most people buying through some form of electronic transaction where you can at least identify it's the same individual, even if you don't know who they are. You have many propositions where we actually do know who the customer is if they've used a mobile app or a personalised proposition. We've got vehicles that automatically count people on and off. We've got automatic vehicle location. We've got clever CCTV systems that can tell you whether it's children or adults or even whether they're leisure or commuters on, on your vehicle's I've seen some really good pockets of people working with this data, but I'm not sure it's kind of as mainstream as it as it could be yet. And and of course, it's not just the analysis, but once we've got data, we can think about, well, what could we change in our customer proposition using that data? Revenue protection and fare checking is, is an obvious one, I think, on this. Of you know, If you're caught on a tram or a train today without a ticket, generally you get a pretty punitive fine because the assumption is we've happened to court you today but we must assume that you're a serial offender who's never bought a ticket and therefore you know punish you as if this was an intentional repetitive act because with data we could potentially see that you know you've been a loyal regular customer that every day for the past two years you've bought a ticket and actually your story about you know your phone went funny this morning and you know rejected the transaction might actually be a legitimate story and we shouldn't be punishing you for the the one-off mistake today and uh, i just think yeah there's a lot we could do with data and uh, go back to journey planning that we're talking of course one of the things we don't tend to look at is all those journeys that people look for in multimodal journey planners but then choose to take the car because we have visibility of that that is wonderful I mean, that, we'd know where our hidden demand is. It's it's a bit like saying we're not going to build a bridge here because very few people swim across this river. But if yeah. you knew all of the lookups that in the end didn't convert into public transit journeys, you see the demands that you're not serving. So rather than looking where you've got people on buses, so you're counting the people going yeah. across the bridge that exists, how do you count the people that would have gone across the bridge that doesn't exist or the route that doesn't exist? Now, that, that I like. We talked about the problem of monetizing journey plans, and maybe that's where it is. You know, maybe these need to become data intelligence providers of if you ran a bus between here and here, we can see that we get this many hundred searches a day. And actually, because they've got it linked to their Android Auto or their you know, their, their CarPlay, we can see that ultimately they go in the car at the end of the day and don't take the bus option. And uh, yeah, maybe some clever stuff we could do with data. I do like that. That definitely does sound like something that could really help us with transit planning as we're trying to make sure people have more car optional life and car optional commutes and leisure and everything else. Also for other voices, who do you recommend that we uh, have a speak to on the uh, Transit Voices podcast next? So we talked a lot about journey planning today, and I think that that probably gives me the idea of maybe uh, reach out to Andrew Steele. Andrew's one of these people I, you know, I've worked with throughout my time on UK Rail as a um, originally rail journey planning expert, solving the problem of getting A to B by rail when it was a big computational problem. But nowadays, focuses much more on that high quality urban journey 
planning and uh, you know, through his company, uh, Smart Thing, uh, providing tailored um, city-centric journey planning to local authorities. So I think there could be a lot of interesting discussion with, with Andrew to carry on that journey planning theme. Yeah, well, certainly take the, the questions that you raised straight to him. That would be a great chat. Well, fantastic. Thank you so much for coming in today, Richard. It's been really fun to carve through some of the ashes and, and carcasses of dragging the UK rail industry, kicking and screaming into the digital age from yep. faxes and printouts. It's always good to catch up and chat around these. Yeah, and I I, I do wonder what what we're going to see is that the next the next revolution from digitizing of tickets and sales, which has occurred over the last 15 years, what's going to be the big change? Well, I look forward to uh, meeting up with you in the coming uh, months and all the best for your next endeavours on regional ticketing. Thank you very much. I'll speak to you soon. Speak to you soon. Oh, there you have it from Richard. Fascinating. And I love going back over looking at why we can't just lift and shift a solution that works in one context, like London Oyster, into another context, like regional and further off cities. Of course, reuniting with uh, decentralised versus centralised as an approach for all ticketing, this battleships versus speedboats, avoiding getting bogged down in huge procurements when really you can try things out and then join them together with a committee of the willing. And I can't wait to get stuck into more questions with some experts from journey planners of why it is our journey planners are overly simplistically slavishly ruining our long distance public transport plans by being blind to the fact that we probably will take a five minute cab journey at the end rather than waiting an hour and a half for the only bus of the day. As again, we're seeing mass as our boondoggle this time for the opaque pricing of bundled mass. The opposite of best value and capping is bundled mass, the underused gym membership moneymaker. Anyway, do join us next month for more Transit Voices by subscribing and making sure you never miss another episode. Thanks for coming on and speak to you soon. You've listened to Transit Voices, the podcast by transit nerds for transit nerds. Don't forget to subscribe to Transit Voices to keep up with the latest editions on your favorite podcast platform.